0: Luke 9:28 to 36 If you're using a copy of the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 867, and I know as usual you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open to be reading along with me. Let me briefly pray for us for the ministry of the preaching of God's Word as we come to sit under it this morning. Father in heaven, we would again come to you as children to their father or as a servant to his master we have nothing lord we come begging bread from heaven we pray our god that you would do a great and a mighty work among us we pray that you would be merciful and gracious to us we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding in jesus christ we pray that you would shine into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of god in the face of jesus christ we pray our god that you would accomplish all of your divine purposes that you would be glorified, and that we would be satisfied. And so our God, please give us understanding and spiritual sight of the Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18, Luke has been tracing the ministry of Christ and now comes to the place where Jesus has elicited from his disciples that great confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Luke tells us, About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, literally his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem." Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who spoke with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I have a confession to make. I am not one of those people that like to engage in people watching. Uh, my wife is one of those people. But I have special times when I like to engage in something close to people watching, and that's when I'm flying on airplanes, I like to peek over and see what people are reading. Um, It is quite an interesting social experiment when you eavesdrop on what other people are reading. And on this last flight that we took home this week from Colorado, there was a girl and her mother, and... The girl seemed to be probably about 18, 19 years old, and she was reading a book on out-of-body experiences. And on the front cover, it had a really bright light. And at one point, she leaned over to her mom and she said, these people claim to have had these amazing experiences. And her mom just kind of nonchalantly just brushed it off like she should do. And, And as I watched that unfold and I thought about our passage today, Jesus is having something of an in-body experience, and the disciples are having something of an out-of-body experience. Moses and Elijah are having something of an out-of-body experience, and this is really the only out-of-body experience that any of us should care about, uh, in so much as it is one of the greatest of the accounts of our Lord Jesus. One old writer, before we look at this, A.A. Bruce Uh, says this about the transfiguration. The transfiguration is one of those passages in the Savior's earthly history which an expositor would rather pass over in reverent silence. He says, Who is able to fully speak of that wondrous night scene among the mountains during which the heaven was for a few brief moments let down to earth and the mortal body of Jesus being transfigured shone with celestial brightness And the spirits of just men made perfect appeared, and they held converse with him, respecting his approaching passion. A voice came forth from the excellent glory, pronouncing him to be God's well-beloved son. It is too high for us, this august spectacle. We cannot attain to it. Its grandeur oppresses and stupefies. Its mystery surpasses our comprehension. Its glory is ineffable. Now, what Bruce is saying is that there is so much wonder. In the account of the Transfiguration, that we should be overwhelmed with how much God is revealing to us in this one episode, in this single instance in the life of the Lord Jesus. I actually believe that the Transfiguration is arguably the greatest single account, other than the crucifixion and the resurrection, in the whole of the gospel narratives because it prepares us for both of those things. It prepares us for the second coming of Jesus in one very real sense the entirety of redemptive history is bound up and the entirety of eternity is bound up in what happens on this mountain now this morning we want to consider three things as we look at this first we want to consider the transformation of our Lord Jesus that occurs and then secondly we want to consider the prefiguration that accompanies it and then Thirdly, we want to consider the subsequent annunciation, the transformation, the prefiguration, and the annunciation. Now notice, Luke tells us that it was eight days after these sayings. Now what saying? Well, this is one of those lessons for us that we have to learn to read the scripture in context. What what goes immediately before this? Well, the very last verse in verse 27. Notice that Luke tells us that no sooner have the disciples made that great confession of faith about him and Jesus has then followed that up by saying, look, I have to suffer, and you're going to suffer. And I'm going to take up my cross, and if you're going to be my disciples, you have to follow me and take up your cross. And you have to be willing to die daily if you're going to be my disciples. And, and there's going to be suffering, and there's going to be affliction, and there's going to be tribulation. And, and yet, notice what Jesus then says. He follows that up in verse 27. But truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see... The kingdom of God. Now, writers have been divided over whether Jesus is speaking there about the missionary expansion in the book of Acts and the disciples going out. And many of them saw the kingdom advancing. They saw the kingdom of God coming in power. They saw the gospel going to the Gentile nations. They were, they were the instruments that carried that out. They saw that. They saw God expanding the Abrahamic covenant out to the nations. And yet I think there's another sense in which we want to understand that what Jesus is saying in verse 27 is that some of them were going to be with him here on the mountain. They would see the kingdom coming. They would see the glory of the king. They would see the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. They would be with him on the mountain. They would see that, that prefiguration of the eternal glory of Jesus. Now, uh, you and I have always known this account by what it goes, the title goes by in your English Bibles, the Transfiguration. It's actually a bit misleading. The Greek word is he was metamorphosized, he was transformed from one form to another. There was something happening to Jesus on this mountain. He was not becoming something other than what he was, but one form, the divine being, was breaking through the humanity. Remember the way. The hymn writer captures this in the great Christmas hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Here is the incarnate Son of God. And as he takes his disciples up on that mountain, and as he is praying, no doubt he is praying that they would uh, see this glory, that his Father would give him this moment. There were many times that Jesus prayed that he didn't just break forth with divine glory. This is a very unique, redemptive, historical moment. And he has been praying for it, and notice that Luke says in verse 29, as he was praying. Now, I want to make just an aside here as a pastoral application. We said last week that Jesus prayed, you'll notice verse 18, he prayed before he elicited that confession of faith from his disciples, and many old writers will say that he was praying that the Father would give the disciples, the supernatural revelation that they needed to know who he is because you can't know who he is. You can sit under the ministry of the word. You can come to the table. You can do everything external and ritualistic and not know who Jesus is if the Father doesn't reveal him to you. It doesn't matter if you come in worship in a solid biblical church every single day of your life. It does not matter. And Jesus is here praying and the Father reveals who he is. And then notice in verse 29 luke again tells us as he was praying the appearance of his face was altered this should teach us this should teach us that we have to depend on the lord just as jesus depended on his father for any true and real spiritual work in our own lives in the lives of others in the churches in which we're members there will be no power there will be no manifestation of his glory There will be no inner illumination of the hearts of men and women to know the mystery of Christ unless the Father is answering the prayers of his people to that end. You know, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who many will attribute as the father of the great awakening, um, didn't just fall into the role that God gave him in unique ways. He prayed his way into it. Edwards Uh, started something called the Concert of Prayer. And the Concert of Prayer was a transcontinental agreement between ministers, many in Scotland, many in New England, who in the 18th century were praying for a great revival. And revival began to break out all over the earth. There was revival in uh, Cambuslang, Scotland. There was revival in Northampton, England, or New England. There was revival breaking out in many places And historians will note that this is exclusively because these men were fervently crying out for revival. They were crying out that God would revive their souls. They were crying out that God would revive his church. You know, when I look at the church in America and the church in the world, I think we lack so much power because we're not crying out to God for it. Please don't brush that off. There is no amount of ritual that will give the power that God will give when he answers the prayers of his people to send the Spirit with great reviving power. Every time something marvelous happens in the gospel, every single time, Jesus is praying. He is praying to his Father. He is heard by his Father. Oftentimes, and this is an amazing little side point, oftentimes it's while we're praying that God answers those prayers. You see that with Daniel Daniel is praying, and God sends an angel, and the angel touches him while he's praying and says, your prayer has been heard. Um, Here, notice Luke says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. Now, what is happening? Jesus is not becoming something other than what he was. He has not ever ceased to be God. And yet, remember the great question that people have been asking up to this point in the Gospels is, who is this? That's the great question. Remember, the disciples were on the boat, and the wind and the waves and the tumultuous storm was crashing down around them, and Jesus silences the wind and the waves with a word. And their response is, who is this? Who can this be? I know you can't do that. I know I can't do that. And then remember, Herod hears about the mighty works of the disciples, and Herod had killed John the Baptist, and he wonders, who is this? Is this John the Baptist come back from the dead? And Who who can this be? And so it's fitting for us to understand that as Jesus is being transformed on the mountain, God is answering the question for us, this is who this is. This is the eternal son. This is the one who has eternal glory. This is the one who dwells in unapproachable light, which no man can see. This is the God who appeared to Moses in the cloud. This is the one who gave Moses the law. This is the one who now, standing on a mountain, has an experience much like Moses. Remember Moses when he went up on the mountain in Exodus 34 and, and God gave him the Mosaic covenant and he gave him the law to give to his people. That when Moses came down from the mountain, uh, the scripture says his, his skin, I don't even know how we would envision this, his skin shone and he didn't even know it was shining. And the people were afraid to come near him because there was a reflected divine glory shining off of the face of Moses. And every time Moses went to speak to the people, he, he unveiled his face. And when he was done, he put a veil over it. And I think we're meant to go back there when we come to this account and to see that there is someone greater than Moses. There is the lawgiver himself. There is the eternal sun with the eternal glory. It's not a reflected glory. It's an innate glory. This is the divine nature breaking through the humanity of Jesus. Oh my, if you could just see this with the eyes of faith, it would change your life forever. It's very interesting, isn't it? Only Peter, James, and John get to go up on this mountain. And Jesus tells them at that time not to tell anyone. And yet this is recorded so that all of us come up. And we can see what happens now, there are several places in Scripture where uh, we have very similar accounts of what is happening uh, with the Lord Jesus. Revelation is one such picture. Remember the Apostle John when he sees that opening vision and he sees heaven open and he sees one he sees uh, one like the Son of God standing clothed down to his feet with a, a white garment and a golden sash around his. His waist and, and his head and hair were white like wool and his face shone like the sun and his eyes were like a flame of fire. Um, that's the symbolic description of the glory and majesty and power and, and honor of the Lord Jesus. And here at the transfiguration, God is giving the disciples and he's giving us a picture of this transformation. Now, uh, It would be easy for us to sort of sentimentalize this. You know, all those pictures of saints with halos um, are are trying in some way to sentimentalize what happens on the mountain. Um, There's nothing like this that's ever happened in all of humanity. You know, it's very interesting. Moses prayed to God and said, show me now your glory. And the Lord said, you cannot see my face for no one can see my face and live. But here's what I'll do. I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I will put my hand over it and I will pass by and I will let you see my hinder side. I will let you see the, the trailing remnants of my glory, but you cannot see me and live. And yet here, the glory of God is shining in the face of Jesus. Here men see what Moses asked to see. But couldn't see because it can only be seen in Christ. I want you to get that. When people say, I want more proof, this is all the proof you need. Jesus is God in the flesh, and you are to worship him as such. You are to own him. You are to fall down before him prostrate and to worship him for his divine majesty. Um, Now, there is a sense in which this transformation is happening for the disciples. Remember, Jesus has told them that he's going to suffer. And and if you had given up everything to follow Jesus, that's that's a huge letdown. I thought the kingdom was coming. I thought there was going to be the establishment of God's kingdom. I thought that the promises of God were coming. I mean, I thought that Jesus was the fulfillment of all things. And, and now he's telling us he's going to fall into the hands of men and they're going to crucify him and he's going to suffer and he's going to die. Then on the third day, he's going to rise. And, and what's what, what is Jesus teaching the disciples here? Well, I think that Jesus is preparing the disciples for the agony and suffering that they're going to witness in the garden. Because these same three that he takes up to be witnesses on the mountain are going to be with him in the garden, and they're going to see him sweating great drops of blood. His face is not shining like the sun. His clothes are not white and glistening. He will be shedding blood in the garden, atoning blood in the garden. He will be looking into the cup of God's wrath that we ought to drink and know that he has to drink it. He will then march from the garden to the cross where the sun itself will be darkened and God will turn his face away from his son and pour out his wrath on his beloved son in our place. And this helps prepare them for that so that they would not buckle under the weight of that, but would know that there is subsequent glory to come. Now, how do I know that? Well, I think we know that because we're told that as Jesus is being transformed, there is prefiguration happening here on the mountain. Notice that Luke tells us that as his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white, behold, two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah. Now, how... How does Luke know it was Moses and Elijah? How, how would the disciples have known this, this was Moses and Elijah? Well, John Calvin, I think, rightly says that God probably gave them some symbol. Perhaps Elijah uh, appeared in the chariot. Perhaps Moses had the rod of God's judgment and the table of the law with him. We don't know. But they knew who they were. They recognized them. They realized that these two had come back from glory, that God had brought them back, that they were there on the mountain, that they were bearing witness to Jesus. Why Moses and Elijah? Very simply, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The whole of the Old Testament is bound up in the law and the prophets. Jesus himself said that all the law and the prophets pointed to him. The entirety of redemptive history is bound up. These two figures, all of Old Testament revelation speaking about him, They are there saying, this is the one who has come into this world to accomplish the thing that we need him to do so that we can be in glory with you. Now, very interesting, Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that tells us what Moses and Elijah were doing with Jesus. Notice verse 31, Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is one of those places I wish your English translation gave you a more literal wooden translation. Um, What does that mean? This is a strange way to talk about somebody's death. Um, If you're dying, I doubt someone's going to say, you know, are you ready to accomplish your death? I hope nobody says that to you. Are you ready to accomplish Your death. Luke says they spoke with him about his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus brings his people out of the bondage of sin and Satan and death itself. Jesus conquers sin and Satan and death. Jesus is our exodus. He is the one that leads his people to the promised land. He is the one that delivers us from the bondage of this world and the sin that so easily weighs us down. Um, and notice that when Moses and Elijah come back, and th- this is one of those questions, isn't it? I, one thing that bothers me is, is watching Christians try to talk about things like whether we're going to have um, football or golf or um, Certain food, entrees in heaven. Not, not because I know whether we're going to have football or golf or food in heaven, because I don't. I have speculations. But it bothers me because what scripture does is says the really important thing is that people are overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus and his sufferings for our redemption. And that that's all that they can talk about. If you're a Christian, that's what you love to talk about. If you're not a Christian, you don't. I'm going to put that out there, and I'm going to leave that out in the most straightforward way. Christians love to talk about the sufferings of Jesus for their redemption. That's all they really want to think about, because that's all that really matters. You know, it's very interesting. Moses, remember, doesn't make it into the promised land in the Old Covenant. Remember, he sins against God, and God says you cannot take the people in. And then he goes up on the mountain at the end of his life, and he disappears. We don't know whether he jumped. He's gone. And that's it. But here, Moses is in the promised land. Oh, don't miss that. Here, because of the work of Jesus, because of the greater exodus, because of the true exodus, because of his death and resurrection for our sins, Moses is is entitled to a privilege, to the everlasting inheritance, and even gets to come and be with the Redeemer at the moment of the fulfillment of all things in the true promised land. That's that's one of the big points of this passage. Notice that Luke will go on to continue talking about the prefiguration of things and one of the things that you might miss if you're reading this is how often glory is mentioned, the idea of glory. The, the word in Hebrew, kavod, means weight. Um, God is glorious. He is, he is weighty in his majesty and honor and power and wisdom. Um, I often joke with people when they say, you know, God is so big, isn't he? No, he really isn't. He's infinite. He's not big. There's no size. To the living God. He fills the heavens and the earth. He he is contained only by himself, and he is weighty in his majesty and his glory. And here, Jesus is shining in that divine glory. He is breaking forth as the God man, showing his disciples who he is. And notice what Luke says. I love this. Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, probably because it had been a long day. Don't want to fault him too much there yet. Peter's got plenty of fault coming. And then notice when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. Verse 32, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now notice back in verse 31, those two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glory and spoke with him. So the disciples saw Jesus's glory. Moses and Elijah, Luke says, appeared in that glory. They were sort of shrouded with the glory of Jesus there on the mountain. And then notice this, a cloud comes, verse 34, a glory cloud. And notice this, it says it overshadowed them, verse 34. Now the them there is everyone on the mountain. And the picture that Luke is giving us is that if you are with Jesus, if you are in Christ, if you are with him, there is glory. Um, This is a picture, by the way, of the consummation. This is what's to come. Here is the whole church in heaven and on earth represented by Moses and Elijah and the three special disciples, apostles, and there's Jesus and there's glory and everyone is in glory. Everyone has the imparted glory of Jesus. By the way, this is the big point the Apostle Paul makes uh, in Philippians when he says that our hope is is that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies, that they may be conformed to his glorious body, even by the effective working that he has to work all things in himself. And and Paul will say in Colossians that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You know, this week as I... Was up in some very beautiful mountains. Um, remembering, my dad used to tell me as a little boy, Nick, the best this world has to offer um, is so empty because men are everywhere trying to bring heaven on earth. Um, you see it. It, it, it's a very weak attempt at glory. And there's really no glory. Um, Jesus will summarize this by saying There is an inheritance that's incorruptible Undefiled It can't burn down It can't flood out It can't be lost It can't be stolen Reserved in heaven for you And it is Christ himself It is the emanating glory of Jesus Listen At the end of the day If this is not what you want There is something seriously wrong in your soul Because this is it Look, Peter didn't want to leave Peter saw the glory. He said, Lord, it is good that we are here. I don't know. Does he mean it's a good experience? It's good for you because we'll build tabernacles for you. We don't know what he means, but he realizes this is good. This is the summum bonum. This is the highest good. This is where we should want to be with Christ in glory. Please don't listen to people that tell you it's not about going to heaven when you die. Because It is, in in part, very much about going to be with Christ when you die in glory. Yes, I know there's a new heavens and a new earth that we're waiting for in which righteousness dwells. I get it. But if you set your heart on earth, you will lose heaven. If, as Lewis says, you aim for heaven, you'll get earth thrown in, but you'll get all the glory of the sun. Notice that Luke is telling us that there is this prefiguration of the glory that the church of God, who are united to Jesus, the true church of God, will experience for all eternity. Notice that as he mentions that cloud, um, that draws our mind, doesn't it? You know, I had a professor in seminary, Houston used to say, And I'd always come into class complaining about it being a cloudy day. I noticed today was a cloudy day and how gloomy we often feel and sad disease and all these other things that we construct in our society. And I had a church history professor He used to come in on cloudy days and he'd say, brother, isn't it a beautiful day? And we're like, no, it's not. He's like, the birds are chirping, the clouds are covering everything. We'd be like, what are you talking about? And he said... You know, everywhere in Scripture, when God appears, there's a cloud. Everywhere. Whether it's the cloud of pillar and God's appearance and that theophany leading Israel through the wilderness, out of Egypt in the Exodus. Whether it is the cloud that comes down on Sinai and Moses enters into that cloud and God speaks from the cloud to Moses and from the bush. Whether it is the cloud that comes down on the tabernacle and then later on the temple and fills the most holy place with the glory of God everywhere God is coming, he's coming with clouds. I think there's several reasons. One, clouds are a sign of both exaltation and transcendence and imminence. Clouds come down and yet clouds are up. God is both transcendent and he is imminent. The Bible says that Jesus ascended to heaven with the clouds And the scripture says he will so come from heaven with the clouds. Um, Daniel, in his great vision of the Son of Man, said, I saw in the night one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven even unto the ancient of days. Jesus there in the ascension going to his Father with the clouds. The appearance of Jesus, whether it is coming down, whether it is going up, here God the Father comes in this glory cloud. Now one of the really interesting things, is that when the apostles reflect back on what happens on this mountain, and one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why the uh, Lord Jesus took these three up is so that they would be witnesses of this. Remember, the law said, "On the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established." Here are the three, the inner circle. Jesus has brought them up, and they will reflect back at several places in their writings in the New Testament on this account. And when Simon Peter does it, in Second Peter, he will say, We were eyewitnesses of the excellent majesty when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we saw the glory cloud and we heard the voice of the excellent glory coming out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. So when Peter reflects on this, he doesn't reflect on Moses and Elijah He doesn't even tell us about Jesus. He remembers the awesomeness of the glory cloud and the voice that came out of it. And I think that's important because Peter learns a very valuable lesson that Jesus was teaching him on the mountain. Notice that um, Peter, very impulsively, as he is so wont to do in the gospel, says, let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Well, what's the application there for you? Well, here's a very simple application. We love exalting men far too much. I'm going to give you the very basic application. Peter teaches us, you and me, just like Simon Peter, love to give people more glory than we should and not give it to Jesus alone. That, that is the very pointed application. We love to praise sinners and exalt them to places of, of honor and praise inappropriately. Here, Peter sees two of the great saints, and he says, Lord, it's, it's good to be here. Let, we're just going to build three tabernacles, and, and you can have one, and Moses can have one, and Elijah can have one, and, and you're all sort of on equal planes. Don't miss this. What has Peter forgotten? Well, he's forgotten who Jesus is. He, doesn't, he hasn't quite understood the emanating glory of Jesus, the effulgence coming off of the Lord Jesus and out from the Lord Jesus. He, he is, he's missed the point of the transfiguration, the transformation of Jesus, metamorphosis. Um, and he has also forgotten the mission. I want you to think about this. Remember, Jesus has handpicked them to go out and to proclaim the gospel. And through their preaching to see the kingdom advanced. And Peter's like, hey, forget about the other eight. Let's just stay here forever. Let's just build heaven on earth on this mountain. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, everybody gets a really nice tent. We'll all stay there. It'll be lots of... Uh, lots of." Um, Uh, sweet experiences and mountaintop highs, and it's going to be awesome. We're just going to stay here. Forget about the mission. Forget about the salvation of the world. Forget about the sufferings of Jesus. Let's just stay here. It is going to be luxurious. This is it. And as he says that, notice verse 34, I love this. As he was saying these things, the glory cloud comes. And a voice comes and says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We have here the third place, the Annunciation. And, you know, it's very interesting if we continue to consider uh, Moses' experience up on the mountain and that parallel with Jesus on this mountain. Remember, Moses goes up into the glory cloud. God gives him the commandments, 613 laws built on the 10 words, the 10 commandments, he is then to take that down to Israel and to relate to them all of the law and all the commandments of God. And, and the, when you read Exodus, there's this sense where this is happening over this 40 day period that it's very, very, very prolonged, that God is coming at different times. Moses is going back up. God's giving him more. He's taking it back down. Here, there is one clear word. Don't miss this. Here is the redeemer in whom everything is fulfilled Here is the brightness of his Father's glory, the exact representation of his person, the one who is the greater Moses, the greater Redeemer, the greater Exodus, the greater law keeper, the greater law giver, the Savior. And the only thing that is said is God the Father affirming who he is. This is my son. Listen to him. Now, that might be one of the most powerful words you could ever hear. I sometimes think that With the rise of social media and um, the court of public opinion, most of us are very easily swayed by um, hundreds of thousands and millions of voices pressing in on your conscience what you should really care about. I think that's really happening right now in very um, oftentimes unrecognizable ways on the souls of people. You can start feeling guilty. I'm not doing enough. I'm not involved in this. I'm not standing for this. I'm not marching for this. I'm not doing this. I'm not caring enough. I'm not doing enough. That's what social media will do to you. That's what the media will do to you. And you come to the mountain, and there is one word. This is my beloved son. Hear him. And that word is more powerful than every voice in the world. If every voice in the world combined to tell you what you should be thinking and doing, involved in, and what your life should look like, It is nothing compared to this one voice. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, very obviously, that should make you want to listen to him. That's the very obvious application. You should want to listen to Jesus. You should want to listen to everything that he says. You should want to listen to everything that is said about him. You should understand as the apostle Paul says that all the scripture is the word of Christ and that there is a center to that revelation and that is everything Jesus came to do in his sufferings and his subsequent resurrection. I think by the way I think a passage like this is far more preparatory for us on Palm Sunday than Jesus riding in the triumphal entry because this is everything it contains everything. And and his voice is the only voice that matters. You see, you can listen to Moses and not listen to Jesus, even though Moses spoke about Jesus. That's what the Pharisees did. You can read the Old Testament all day long and think you've mastered it, but if you don't see Jesus and you're not hearing him, you have mastered nothing. And you understand nothing. This is everything. Um, I love this, by the way, and Matthew and Luke capture this for us. There is... um, there's a question being answered here. And if you're asking this question, and I hope you're asking this question, I want to help you see this this morning. There is there is a sense in which we all should be asking, how do I see the glory of Jesus? How do I see the glory of God in my soul? How can I be one who doesn't just hear these things, but experiences the brightness of his glory shining into our hearts? And, you know, it's very interesting. Simon Peter, when he's reflecting on that glory cloud, he says we have a more sure word than even that word. And notice that when the glory of God comes, the only way the disciples come to grasp it is when the word of God accompanies the sight of that glory. You see, there is glory in the word. This is my son. Listen to him. And that glory is the same glory as the glory that they saw in the cloud. So that it is the same glory. So that you don't need to be up on the mountain, seeing some majestic sunset to stir yourself up onto some spiritual, mystical experience. You just need to read the Bible prayerfully and wanting to see Jesus. That's it. That's greater than being at the highest mountain, seeing the most beautiful sunsets, seeing the most spectacular displays of the overflow of God's glory. There is nothing that will impart glory into your soul other than the Word of God as it centers in Jesus. Um, there is so much here. I want to leave you with just a couple of thoughts this morning. If, you, if you've never seen the glory of Jesus, if you've never had God shine, the light of his glory into your heart. Um, Cast your eyes on Jesus. I mean, that's the point. See who he is. Look full in his face. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow dim in the light of his glory and grace. you got to look at Jesus. If you've never looked at Jesus with the eyes of faith, I am begging you to do it this morning. Um, if you are like me and you have experienced God's light shining into your soul, and yet there are times when there is darkness, there are times when you feel like you walk in um, hopelessness or you've had your assurance shaken, you come back here and you see that Christ wants to give you his glory. He wants you to see that glory again. He wants His desire is not to veil his glory from believers It is so that we would see that glory. Now, here's the really wonderful thing. I'm going to leave you with this this morning. There's actually one place in Scripture where you can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus more than here at the Transfiguration. And it's not the vision of the Apostle John in Revelation 4 and 5 or 1. It is when he's hanging on the cross, crowned with thorns, The earth is quaking, the sun is darkened, the wrath of God is being poured out on him. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the son, this is the beloved son. This is the one the father comes to affirm and pronounce the announcement about and he is forsaken on the cross and it is dark. And yet you know what? That is where all the divine glory is fully displayed. Don't miss that. The glory of God is fully displayed at the cross. Jesus stands in our place so that he would shine the light of the gospel into our filthy and black hearts. Because your heart is filthy and black by nature. And his light is glorious and sweet and ineffable and pure and perfect. And he takes all of the darkness on himself and all of the sin and all of the rebellion and all of the wrath so that you might know he is the glory bearing and glory imparting son to sinners like us who trust in him. I hope that you will be stirred up, that your heart will be stirred to new affections for the Lord Jesus or perhaps the first affections for him as we consider these things. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church this morning. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we often, like the disciples, are spiritually asleep, fail to comprehend and to truly see with the eyes of faith the glory of your Son. And so we pray that you would please awaken us this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would cause this word to work in us, that you would cause the power of the gospel and the light of your glory to work in our souls this morning. We pray, our God, that you would cause us to long for glory, that we would find this world dim and empty and base and weak and passing away, and yet we would labor for those joys and glory that has no end. And so, our God, we pray that you would help us to that end, that you would show us your glory in the face of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.